nursery and children's church can be dismissed at this time. Those who will be remaining in the sanctuary, if you would please turn to Leviticus chapter 27. Leviticus chapter 27. You would think that we have reached the end, but we have not. There will be one more sermon on Leviticus next week, and then we will be done with Leviticus after that. So Leviticus chapter 27. And for purposes of something that I'm going to mention when the sermon starts, I'm actually going to begin our reading in chapter 26, the last verse, verse 46. These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. 27 verse 1. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to your valuation of persons belonging to the Lord. If your valuation is of the male from 20 years, even to 60 years, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. Or if it is female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. Uh, If it be from five years, even to 20 years old, then your valuation for the male shall be 20 shekels and for the female, 10 shekels. But if they are from one month, even to five years old, then your valuation shall be five shekels of silver for a male. And for the female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if they are from 60 years old and upward, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels and for the female, 10 shekels. But if he is poor, then your valuation, then he shall be placed before the priest and the priest shall value him according to the means of the one who vowed the priest shall value him. Now, if it is an animal of the kind which men can present as an offering to the Lord, such as any one that gives to the Lord, it shall be holy and he shall not replace it or exchange it it, it, uh, good for a bad or a bad for a good. Or if he does exchange the uh, if he does exchange animal for animal, uh, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. If, however, it is an unclean animal of the kind which men do not present as an offering to the Lord, then he shall place the animal before the priest. The priest shall value it as either good or bad uh, as you, the priest, value it. So it shall be. But if he should ever wish to redeem it, then he shall add one fifth of it to your valuation. Now, if a man consecrates uh, his house as holy to the Lord, Then the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. Yet if the one who consecrates it should wish to redeem his house, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it, so that it may be his. Again, if a man consecrates to the Lord part of the fields of his own property, then your valuation shall be proportionate to the seed needed for it. A omer of barley, seed at 50 shekels of silver. If he is, if he consecrates his field, uh, as of the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. And if he consecrates his field after the Jubilee, however, then the priest shall calculate the price for him proportionate to the years that are left until the year of Jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. If the one who consecrated should ever wish to redeem the field, then he shall add one fifth of your valuation price to it so that it may pass to him. Yet if he will not redeem the field, but has sold the field to another man, it may no longer be redeemed. And when it reverts in the Jubilee, the field shall be holy to the Lord like a field set apart. It shall be for the priest as his property. Or if he consecrates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not part of the field of his own property, then the priest shall calculate for him the amount of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee. 
and shall on that day give your valuation as holy to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to the one from whom he bought it and the possession of the land which it belongs. Every valuation of yours, moreover, shall be after the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel shall be 20 geras. However, a firstborn among animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may consecrate it, whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. But if it is among the unclean animals, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and add to it one-fifth of it. And if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Nevertheless, anything which a man sets apart to the Lord out of all that he has, of man or animal or the field of his property, shall not be sold or redeemed. Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord. No one who may have um, been set apart among men shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Thus all the tithe of the land and the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, it is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one fifth of it. And every tenth part of a herd or a flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. For if he does exchange it, then, it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy it shall not be redeemed. And these are the commandments with the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for the challenges that it brings into our lives. And Father, for the great and gracious gift that it is. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, this is a, this is a really tricky passage of scripture. Um, I, for the most part, um, really, really enjoy what God allows me to do in sermon preparation. I had uh, one of the elders recently send me a text and said, I was just kind of thinking about it. And it's just so very cool that you basically get to spend most of your days working, studying the Bible and stuff like that. Yeah, right. It's pretty cool most of the time. Until you come across a text like this one. And not so much because it's weird and challenging, but because of the subject matter that's in it and the complexity that comes from that subject matter. And you'll see what I'm talking about in a minute as we kind of unfold this valuation process that's given in Leviticus chapter 27. Because the valuation here is not just for vows, as many commentators would like to try to present it as, nor is it valuations for animals to be presented in sacrifices or as offerings to the Lord, which that is part of what's going on in this chapter as well. But because of the context of what's going on here, and we'll unfold this more deeply in a moment, we have seen over the last several chapters What do you do with someone who essentially is either bought into or sells themselves into slavery, particularly as it relates to the year of Jubilee and the redemption and the release from slavery of individuals? And how do you value that? Because the Hebrew system allowed for people to be redeemed from slavery. Again, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but this is not just a chapter about vows 
And it's not just a chapter about the value of a person who gives a vow. And it's not just a chapter about the value of an animal when you're presenting it as an offering. It's also a chapter about how do you value a human person who's engaged in the ancient Middle Eastern form of slavery. Which is a profoundly uncomfortable thing to talk about. I don't know about you, but I just am not super comfortable talking about slavery. It's not way high on my list of things to just chat it up. Hey, let's go get coffee and talk about slavery. It's not not way up there for me. And so this is going to be kind of uncomfortable. So I I took a step back into Leviticus 26, and this is not in your notes. um, But in Leviticus 26 and went to uh, verse 46 to, to show you the oddity of this chapter. If you read verse 46 of Leviticus 26, it says, These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Sinai, period. When you read that sentence, what do you think? We're done. It's the only place in Leviticus where it talks about the law like this. So, hey, this is it. The laws, the ordinances, statutes. This is what God gave them. And he gave it to Moses at Mount Sinai. It's done. This is it. And then we get to 27. Oh, and again, the Lord spoke to Moses. Okay, so what, what's, what's, what's the deal? Why aren't we done? I thought we were done. Like that sentence leads me to believe we're done. Why are we still talking? I thought this was over. Well, because if you scan back through the law, the book of Leviticus, there's all this stuff about redemption price. If the year of Jubilee hasn't come yet, and if things aren't being given back to a person or a person's not being set free, and a person is going to be redeemed before the year of Jubilee, there's a redemption price. Okay, so what is it? I challenge you, scan back through Leviticus 1 through 26... And see if you can find what the redemption price is to redeem someone before the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee comes, they're set free. And the property's given back. But if redemption's going to occur before then, how much does it cost to get your land back? How much does it cost for a person to get his freedom back? How much does it cost for a person who's in the nation of Israel who sells himself as a hired hand and is not treated as a slave but treated as a hired hand? How much does it cost for them to be free again? No answers in Leviticus 1-26. through We don't know how much it is. And you know as well as I do that if you enter into financial negotiations, it drives my wife nuts. She's not here this morning. It drives her nuts when we go to countries that aren't the United States, where the habit and custom is to negotiate the cost of an item rather than just paying what's on the ticket. She hates it. It's the least favorite thing of hers on earth. I, on the other hand, thrive. I love it. I wish we did it in America. Like... This bad car market we're in right now, I guarantee you I could roll out someplace with a $150 car. I could just pull, I know I could pull it off. And she hates it like it drives her nuts. But you know as well as I do, if you don't start with some sort of set value when you have financial negotiations, because of the wretched, fallen, sinful condition of man, the person who has the good that you want is going to try to take you for a ride. That's what they're going to do. And listen, 
These people were sinful like anybody else. So, hey, I can sell myself to you because I've impoverished myself and we can wait till the year of Jubilee and I can be set free. Or if I come up with the means before then, I can repurchase my freedom and pay my own redemption price. How much is that? 10,000 shekels. Wait, what? That's like 900 years of work or something insane like that. If you don't have a set valuation that you can then grade off of amount of time served, it's going to create a system that's advantageous for the one who's the holder, disadvantageous for the one who's in poverty. And you don't want to have a system like that. So you have to have something set down in the law that says, here's the value of things. This is how that works. And that's actually what this chapter is about. It's talking about the value of things. So first, I want to talk about vows because that's how this starts. Notice what it says in verse 2 of chapter 27. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man makes a difficult vow. And it talks a little bit later again about the person who vowed and the vow that they made and that sort of thing. And almost all commentators go to people making vows of service to the tabernacle and then later to the temple. And that's a fine way to understand this word. But like many other words in most languages, it has multiple meanings. It's just not one meaning. And this word doesn't just mean a difficult vow. It can also mean someone who has made a very hard choice. And I think that a lot of commentators are missing the larger context of the end of the book of Leviticus by only honing this into the vow association with tabernacle and, temple, and later temple life. Because the last several chapters have not been most readily speaking about tabernacle service. They've been talking about what happens to a person or to their property when they find themselves in such a financially dire situation that they consider selling off their inheritance property or going to the full extreme and selling themselves into slavery, which the nation of Israel should not have treated their countrymen as slaves, but rather hired hands in expectation for the year of Jubilee. And by overlooking the fact that that could be, quote unquote, a very difficult choice. By the way, you're vowing yourself to that. It is a difficult vow. I think by eliminating that from the conversation, we're missing part of what's going on here in this chapter. And so this is usually in the context of the tabernacle. But the immediate context gives us some notion of doing something that is very hard to do in the context of the Jubilee, which is redemption. And so when it starts valuing people who have made these difficult vows, and by the way, some of these people that are valued could not have made this vow themselves. There's a valuation for one month of age to five years old. They're not going to have the mental comprehension to know, well, I've impoverished myself, so I'm selling myself as a hired hand. Or I'm dedicating myself to the work of the tabernacle as a four month old. Like clearly this is other people involved in this. That's part of why the valuation is taking place. Now, we have seen some of these vows that aren't related to more of a slave trade mindset uh, throughout scripture. Um, Hannah with Samuel, Lord, if you give me a child. I'll commit him to you. And she gives him over to the service of the, the, the tabernacle. 
Um, we, we've seen this in a variety of other kinds of ways throughout the scripture. There are those kinds of vows that do take place. But there's also these hired hand vows, and many of the commentators did touch on that. And so I would just want to run through quickly because they're kind of scattered just so that you can hear the valuation. So a man aged 20 to 60 was worth 50 shekels. You say, Philip, how much is 50 shekels? We have no idea. A shekel is not an amount of money. It's a value of weight. And so depending on what weight that they were valuing over against the precious metal would determine the worth of a shekel. And so if it was a shekel based on the tabernacle, based on a measure of silver, which a lot of people in the church have thought that that's probably what it was, it would be a weight of about four days worth of pay. Okay. So 50 shekels would have been about 200 days worth of pay. Almost a year, not quite, but almost a year. Two thirds of a year's worth of pay. Now, it doesn't matter what culture, what society, what time and what place you live in. If you live there, two thirds of your annual salary is a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money. And so if someone goes into this and they say, okay, your valuation is 50 shekels, two thirds of a year's worth of pay. And then that person needs to try to figure out a way to pay it back so that they can redeem themselves. They'd have to enough, have to make enough to live on and save enough to buy back. Not an easy thing to do. Covering almost a year's worth of salary plus still trying to live while technically working for somebody else. Not easy to do. Okay. The valuation for a woman age 20 to 60 was 30 shekels. The valuation of a male age 5 to 20 was 20 shekels. And you guys, I'm not the math guy. You can run the multiplication in your head of the amount that I just gave you. Female age 5 to 20, 10 shekels. A one-month-old to a five-year-old. A male, five shekels, one month old to a five year old female, three shekels, 60 plus year old man, 15 shekels, 60 plus year old female, 10 shekels. And then there's this exemption reality in chapter 27. If you are poorer than the average person, if you are, if you already were in exceptional poverty before you reached this point or before you made this vow, the priest would give you a valuation, usually less than the amount that was here. They wouldn't overvalue if you already started out in a poorer state than most. And part of what's built into this, and we actually see Jesus talking about this, is a caution in vow giving. Whenever you say, hey, I'm going to do something, and you make a strong commitment, particularly to the Lord or to someone else, you need to be careful about what you're committing yourself to. And Jesus actually talked about that. Do you, do you remember the text? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But don't make an oath by heaven. That's God's throne. Or by earth. That's God's footstool. In other words, none of that's yours to give. Don't make these excessive over-the-top vows about stuff. Just let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Even Jesus in the New Testament touches on this cautionary reality of vow giving. 
Now, I want to talk briefly, and we just kind of ran through for for people, but I do want to talk about the values that are discussed in this chapter before we move into the more complex issue of slavery. So when it comes to issues of values, we just saw the valuation of people. Now, I just want to pause. Surely I'm not the only person that reading a value sheet for humans makes uncomfortable. Like beyond just studying this text this past week, just reading this text was incredibly uncomfortable. Well, if you're a male age 20 to 60, then you're worth 50 shekels. And if you're a female age 20 to 60, then you're worth 30 shekels. And if you're and just a value checklist for human people. This is as a human person based on gender and age. This is how much you're worth. I I had to read through it a few different times just to kind of get over how uncomfortable it made me feel. So we saw the valuation of people above. And by the way, that's not a shot against the Bible. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that when you read it should make you uncomfortable. And if it doesn't, I'm not trying to be offensive unnecessarily. But if you always read the Bible and you're never bothered, you're not reading the Bible correctly. Just want to throw that for free. Just want to throw that out there. Like there's something incorrect about your Bible study methodology. If every time you read the Bible, you walk away and go, oh, that was great. I didn't bother by that at all. Like, no, there should be some stuff in the Bible every once in a while that hits you really weird. And makes you go, wow, I feel really uncomfortable about this. <laughs> for whatever reason. Okay. Then they give valuations of animals. Felt a lot less uncomfortable about valuing animals. I mean, because let's just face it. How many people in this room have not bought some kind of an animal? You know. This fish at the fish store costs $5. This dog at the place costs $100. You know, if you want to go halves on a cow, this is Texas. You want to go halves on a cow with your friends to eat. You know, it's going to cost this much per the price of pound and depending on who the butcher is. You know, like we do that. Way less uncomfortable when they're talking about the valuations of animals because we do that all the time. Of course, clean animals had a higher value than unclean animals. Animals that were first born could not receive evaluation because they already belonged to the Lord unless there was some defect with the firstborn male animal. And then throughout most of these valuations of animals and or of property, because they also talk about houses and fields and in places where you can grow things. If the valuation was exchanged for something else, the exchange rate was a whopping 20 percent tax increase. So whatever it's worth, if you want to exchange it for something else, you had to add 20%, one-fifth. That was the upgrade cost of exchanging animals and property and different things like that. Which, by the way, all went to the priest. Because remember, they didn't have their own land to work. So they didn't, or not expansive lands to work like the other tribes did. And so they had to be able to figure out a way to gain resources where the other people would just do it through lands and crops and that sort of thing. And so this 20% increase of exchange usually happened at the tabernacle. It's a pretty high rate, which just for fun, when Jesus flipped over the tables in the temple, because people were trying to do the money exchange for the right kinds of animals because they couldn't bring the animals with them. 
And he said that the rate was so high that they had turned his father's house into a den of thieves and robbers. How much more exorbitant must that tax have been? Because built into the law, there was already an allowance by God for a 20% increase. What must they have been doing in the temple service for Jesus to be mad enough to flip the tables over? 40%, 50%, 60%, 100%, 200%, who knows? I don't know. Nobody's sure. What I do know is higher than 20 because 20 was legal. It was built into the Levitical law. And so ridiculously, just so next time you read that story, just know it was way up there. And then you have the issue of slavery. Here we go. I got to take a drink. Why speak on slavery here? As I mentioned before. The human valuation chart here isn't just for tabernacle service. That's not only thing that it's used for. Because the year of Jubilee isn't just about people who have made holy, righteous vows of service to the Lord in the temple. That's not. And in chapter 27, it mentions a couple of different times about the year of Jubilee. And we know that the year of Jubilee is a year of redemption. Particularly redemption of property and people who have been sold, namely selling themselves into service or a form of slavery. The book of Leviticus is very cautious to tell the nation of Israel to not treat their countrymen as slaves, but rather to treat them as hired hands. Understanding that they will be redeemed at the day of uh, at the year of Jubilee if they're not redeemed beforehand through a redemption payment, which, by the way, they could pay themselves. The owner, if they felt so mercifully obliged, could pay on their behalf or some other person outside of that circumstance or situation could come in and also pay on their behalf. There was a lot of opportunities for redemption for someone who found themselves in this situation. So this being in association with the year of Jubilee and the larger context that we've seen. Let's talk about slavery in the scripture, because if you've ever paid attention to anyone who objects to Christianity, one of the very first and great objections that they will go to is how immoral many of the laws of God actually are. And if you believe that God is moral and righteous and just and good perfectly and in all ways, why in the world would he give you such a wretchedly immoral set of laws and such a wretchedly immoral law book like the Bible? That's what Opponents of Christianity will often say and argue. And if you're not careful, you'll hear that and go, well, yeah, well, I mean, God seems to condone slavery and slavery. Well, everybody knows slavery is a bad thing. So what's the deal? Like, how can this God be good if he gives us regulations about? So let's have let's have a really tense and uncomfortable conversation about this this morning. First. And I've said this a lot from the pulpit. I've said this a lot from other pulpits. I've written this down in, in forms people can go back and read. I've said this in Sunday school classrooms and in Bible studies and in classrooms and in discipleship courses it, over coffee. I've, I've said this probably in my sleep. And I'm sure my wife has nudged me and said, Philip, nobody's asking right now. I'm sure that that has happened. First thing to consider when you think about this issue of slavery The law does not make you moral, nor does it save you. And people are like, well, Philip, you talk about that all the time, but what's the big deal? The issue that we're going to talk about right now 
is a real objective outworking big deal of that truth. The law does not make you moral. Nor does it save you. And the problem with most Christians, at least over the past few hundred years in evangelical Christianity, is that we have confused the notion of, quote unquote, following God's law with the notion of being moral people. And I'm here to contend and I've always contended and it will take an awful lot to convince me that I shouldn't contend for this. That is just not true. The law does not make you moral. Now, are there some moral things in the law that if you do them, at least outwardly give the appearance of morality? Absolutely. The law says don't lie. If you don't lie, it's a very moral thing to tell the truth and to not deceive people. That's absolutely correct. But there's plenty of people who do not have moral standing before God who tell the truth. That's the other thing. The doing of righteous things also technically doesn't make you moral or save you. Because your heart can be desperately wicked and sick and you can still accomplish some outwardly moral things. Hashtag the Pharisees. So, second thing. The law of God, specifically, you can put, if you're taking notes, capital L. The law of God... Give certain social allowances in which God's greater moral law is still violated. This is why I say that you cannot be moral by following the law of God. I'll say that again. God's law gives certain social allowances that actually violate God's greater true moral law. You say, Philip, what, what? No, you're saying something awful about God's word. I'm not saying anything awful about God's word. I'm saying something that Jesus said about God's word. Some of you are looking skeptical and wondering if there needs to be a special meeting for me not to be the pastor of this church anymore. So I'm going to prove up the point real quick. Flip over a few pages to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Law of God written down. Back in the day on stone, now on black ink, on white paper. Law of God, Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the for- her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that would be an abomination before the Lord and you should not bring sin into the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. If you are not familiar with this text from Deuteronomy chapter 24, Jesus had something incredibly enlightening to say about it in the New Testament. And the guys asked him, the legal officials of the day asked him, why did Moses give them permission to divorce? And what was Jesus's response? Jesus's response was, 
Because it is the moral unction of God's greater hidden worth and value that he's okay with divorce. That's not what he said. God's greater moral principles is one of divorcing people because you're just not happy with them. That's not what he said. Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses gave you that law. Jesus himself says that there are things in God's law that actually violate God's greater moral principles because the social circumstances in which the law was written had to give allowances to the depravity of man. Friends, the law does not make you moral. And there are certain parts of the law that were accommodations culturally for the people it was written to. Jesus himself points that out. Does that mean that there's a deficiency in God's word? No, God's word is true. When he gave them this privilege to have a writ of divorce, it was true that those people were so train wrecked in the hardness of their heart that they had to receive that. And God did not move off of that. When they called for a king and they wrote down that they wanted a king, is that, was that, no, it was a bad thing. They shouldn't have gotten a king. God made that, hey, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. Give them a king and let's see how much of a train wreck it is in their lives. There's a lot of things that happen in God's word and in God's law that are an accommodation to the social reality of God making a greater point in the lives of his people. It does not make you moral. It does not save you. And hear me, this is where we move to the third point. Just because something is allowed or regulated in the written law of God does not mean that it is the absolute standard of morality and righteousness from God's eternal perspective. What does the scripture say about divorce later in the minor prophets? God hates divorce. Yet, in Deuteronomy, there's a writ of divorce allowed. Clearly, what was written in the law was not the absolute standard of God's level of morality and righteousness. Just because it's there doesn't mean that because it was allowed, it's something that we should be about. If you look closely enough, and we saw it in Leviticus, there are allowances for men to marry more than one woman. I want to go ahead and tell you, I don't know how it is at your house. Not going to work at my house. Not going to work. For lots of reasons. But there's allowances for it. Is that God's ultimate moral righteous standard for how he wants the world to be? No, no, it's not. But it was an accommodation for the social reality that they found themselves in. And so when you get to an issue like slavery, those who are opponents of Christianity point to things like this. The, the divorce of a spouse. What about the marrying of more, one, more than one person? What about the having of slaves? Clearly, this shows that your religion is immoral and debased. And, and it's just the ridiculous writings of backwards, illiterate people from the pre-industrial times. And clearly, your God is no God at all. If you've not heard it, there's people that say this stuff all the time. They just read through this text and they go, look, what, what a train wreck of a religion you have. How immoral your God must be to allow these kinds of things to happen. And I think it is in part because evangelical Christians have conflated moral standing with God 
and the keeping of the law of God as the same thing. And they're not. Because God's law was never written to make us moral or to show that we have a right standing with God. Never. It's never written for that purpose. That's not why it exists. And so it's accommodation, it's allowance, and it's regulation of cultural things that are going on at the time is not God saying, I'm okay with this thing that's happening. That's not what's going on. And so the fact that there are some regulations about slavery in the law is not God putting his check of approval on the institution of slavery. We cannot conflate these two things together. Or we will create a train wreck of the spiritual reality of the deep theology of the connection of the two covenants, the old and the new. Otherwise, we all just need to toss Matthew past out and just grab the 613 ordinances that we find in the Old Testament and try to keep those the best that we can. And really hurry up and get a temple built and start having animal sacrifices again so we can have the Day of Atonement and all the other host of things that the scripture in the New Testament tells us aren't worth anything. Because that's not where our moral standing before God resides. Now, what I want you to see is how these accommodations and regulations compare to the culture that would have received this word. I want you to compare the regulations of slavery and slave keeping for the Hebrew people to the slavery that they just came out of. With the Egyptians. Do you remember the stories of the Egyptian slavery that God rescued them from with the great plagues of Egypt? Did they ever have a day off? This is really an interactive moment in the sanctuary. When they were slaves in Egypt, did they ever have a day off? Was there ever any hope that they'd be set free? Was, did many of them get worked to death, literally? Yes. That was ancient slavery. If I own you, you're just another animal in my property set. And any breeding that you do is just giving me more animals to work for me. And you and your children and your grandchildren have no hope of ever being free. Have no hope of ever not being enslaved. Have no hope of not slaving from sunup to sundown every day. Have no hope of not working yourselves to death. Have no hope of even getting a breather on a religious day. No hope at all. None. So let's think through some of the things that we've seen about how the Hebrews are supposed to treat their slaves just in the book of Leviticus. If you injure your slave, you will pay a recompense for the injury that you have caused them. What? So I need to be really careful and cautious with how I treat this, this, this property of mine? No, not property. Another human being. The way the regulations in the scripture about slavery are written is to completely alter the cultural mindset about how humans relate to each other. No human should ever really be considered your property. Humans should be considered humans. And you're not going to beat them and you're not going to hurt them and you're going to give them a Sabbath day like you take a Sabbath day. You're going to give them a day off. 
And you're going to encourage them to participate in the spiritual and religious activities of the day and try to point them to the glory of God. And there is always the hope of redemption to be found where they might have a chance to be free. It is profoundly different than the entire cultural reality of slavery that was going on at the time. Grace-filled and full of hope. So what is God laying a foundation for by giving these accommodations and regulations in his law about slavery? Is he putting a check saying slavery is great and fine and I love it and everybody should do it? No, he's pointing people's minds to the notion you probably shouldn't own other people. Because they're humans made in the image of God. And this culture that you live in right now, while I'm giving you this law, you're incapable of processing the idea of everyone being free. So I'm going to give you some laws of accommodations that will start moving you that way over time. Because even built into the book of Leviticus is don't ever enslave your own countrymen. If they ever sell themselves to you, treat them as a hired hand, someone that you pay. Don't treat them as a slave, which was a radically foreign notion to every other culture on earth at the time. There's certain people we shouldn't enslave at all. Foreign concept. God's law around this issue is profoundly grace filled. And the fact that it's there is not saying God's okay with slavery. The fact that it's there the way that it is, is actually showing the underlying current of God's greater mercy and greater grace and greater goodness of we need to try to move the world to a place where this just doesn't exist. And you say, well, Philip, I'm not buying that, man. I just, I don't, I don't see that. Okay. Well, then let's take a look at Jesus, our true value, and let's talk a little bit about vows. Let's talk a little bit about value, and let's talk a little bit about the New Testament take on slavery. So first, the vows thing was the first thing that was in our list. The New Testament makes it really clear. Don't make any vows. Don't swear oaths. Especially don't swear oaths by things that aren't even yours. You know, I swear by heaven. No, you don't. Heaven's not yours. I swear by earth. No, you don't. Earth's not yours. I swear by my life. No, you don't. Your life's not yours. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no and be an honest, true person. Jesus makes this incredibly clear. Second, your value. And I'm going to hold that. We'll talk about value in a second. The New Testament take on slavery. The New Testament take on slavery continues the trend away from the abusive relationship of slavery. And there's two key places in the New Testament that you can go to see this. The biggest one is the book of Philemon. Paul writes to Philemon about Onesimus, a slave that Philemon owned who escaped, which was a severely punishable crime in the Roman Empire. Along the way, Paul and Onesimus meet up Onesimus is converted and Onesimus becomes very helpful to Paul's ministry. And then Onesimus realizes I wronged Philemon by the way I left. I shouldn't have done that. And he wants to go back 
And he wants to be reconciled to Philemon because Philemon's a brother in Christ. Now Onesimus is a brother in Christ. And even though there was a slave owner relationship, there's a longing for reconciliation. So Paul writes to Philemon and he says, look, I can make you accept him. But instead, I want to appeal to your heart. I want you to come to the understanding on your own that Onesimus is another human being made in the image of God and you should receive him as a brother in Christ, not with angst and anger as a slave who escaped, but with love and mercy as a brother who's come home to you. That's essentially the synopsis of the book of Philemon. And there's a whole other conversation. And if you want to take me to eat some food one day, I'll be happy to have it with you. But I think it's one of the reasons why in Europe, particularly in England, The ending of slavery there led to far less deeply imprinted racism than it did in the United States. Because in England, they went through a very slow, rigorous, long overhauling process to change people's minds about how they viewed other human beings. And in the United States, we just had a war and killed each other. And when you force someone like Paul said in Philemon, I could make you do this. But I want to convince you in your mind and in your heart. You get two radically different results from that. That's just for free. You can file that away and we have fun chat about that later. So what happens? So you have Philemon. Now, I want everybody to turn. Paul writing to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to see this is beautiful. Beautiful. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is one of the few times where I'm not a fan of the way the New American Standard translates something. So I'm going to fix it. In verse 8 of chapter 1, let's start in verse 8 and we'll pull through. It says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy, for the profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers. Verse 10, for immoral men, homosexuals, my version translates it, and kidnappers, pause, that's not what that word means. It's translated kidnappers here. That word actually means man stealers. You say, well, that's the same thing as kidnapping. No. That particular Greek word when it says man stealing means with the intent on taking that human to forcibly work for you or be sold to forcibly work for someone else. Basically what the slave trade was, you know, for Europe and for America. We're going to go into a place. We're going to steal a bunch of people. We're going to force them to work for us or sell them to somebody else to make them work for them. Paul lists here, among a host of other things, as an immoral activity, something that is against the values of God himself, something that is a sin, stealing other human beings to force them into labor for you or to sell them to labor for someone else. It's a sin. Now, I want to pause there because a whole bunch of Christians a long time ago Made really strong arguments why the Bible was okay with us doing that. But plainly black ink on white paper says you're not supposed to do that. What's really incredible, and I want you to write these two verses down and go look them up later. Paul didn't come up with this on his own in the New Testament. He borrowed this from the law of Moses. In Exodus chapter 21 verse 16 In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 7, it both says 
that anyone who steals another human being, one of them is just wide open for all humans. The other in Deuteronomy is any member of the country, any of your countrymen. But if you steal another person with the intent of them working for you or being sold, the punishment for the person who did the stealing is death. Says it right there, black ink, white paper, and both the Old and the New Testament, that this is an immoral act against the will of God. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to just take another person and force them into labor or sell them to another person to where they'll be forced into labor. You're not supposed to do that. That is morally wrong to do. And so we see this profound, higher moral reality of God. Humans are made in the image of God and they should never be forced into activities with which they do not want to participate by the power of another person. It's not okay. And so what does the New Testament then do with that notion of slavery? It takes the metaphor and it ties it into the gospel. We were slaves to sin. And not the Hebrew version of slavery. Where there might be a year of jubilee. Where I might be able to earn enough to pay off my own redemption price. Not, not the Hebrew version of that. No, 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 no. I was a slave to sin. In the Egyptian, Babylonian concept of slavery. I was trapped. I was stuck. I had no hope. There was nothing I could do to set myself free. There was nothing that I could do to get myself out of the slaved condition that I find myself. The sin had so overwhelmed me and so overpowered me and so encompassed me that my whole life's existence was wrapped up in the fact that I would never be able to pay the debt back. There was no valuation system set in place for me to reach an attainable goal of paying back the weight and the value and the worth of my sin. Why? Because my sin was cosmic treason against the Most High God. My sin was a a, a Disdain for the glory of God and his value is infinite and every day and every moment of every day of my life was an affront to the infinite value of the glory of God and my interest was compounded to an infinite level daily and I never would be able to earn enough to pay it back. That's the notion of our slavery to sin. And then what does it say happened? But Jesus Christ, while we were yet sinners, died for us. And his value and his worth, because he's the God man, was of the same infinite value and worth of the God that I had offended. And he made a great exchange, his righteous life for my wicked one. And he threw the cage open and he set me free. And the gospel has built into it the notion That you should be set free. That Christ came to break chains. Not just real physical chains. Though he came to break those. But the greater deeper dark spiritual chains of the heart. So that when those chains are broken. I might look out at a world. Where people are still enslaved. Still have physical chains. And recognize. 
This is not God's way for humanity. It's not supposed to be this way. Why? And let's talk about value. In Leviticus 27, there's a lot of valuations listed for people and for animals and for property. Friends, hear me this morning. If if you're a guy in the room between 20 and 60, you're worth way more than 50 shekels. In the Sermon on the Mount, it was actually read in the Sunday school class that I attended this morning. Funny how God just brings stuff together, you know. You're worth more than the sparrows. You're worth more than the lilies. You're worth more. Listen, every hair on your head, it's easier for some of us than others, but every hair on your head has been counted and numbered. God knows. You're worth more than the clothing that you wear. You're worth more than the animals out in the field. You have incredible worth and value in the kingdom of God. Worth so great that Christ Jesus himself exchanged his life for yours. That you might sit at the table of the most high God and feast with him as a son or a daughter. There's no checklist of value for you based on your gender or station of life. How much work you might be able to accomplish in a field. How much value you might be able to bring to the sacrifice and the ceremony of the tabernacle. No, your worth and value is connected with the worth and value of Jesus Christ himself. He prayed for you if you're in Christ. The high priestly prayer. Father, love them with the same love with which you love me. There's no list that measures your worth. You are made in the image of God. All hear me this morning, friends. All humanity is made in the image of God and therefore has great worth. How much more a member of humanity that has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. You are of infinite value. You say, Philip, that is not a very Calvinistic thing to say. It is if you understand salvation. Because the worth that I now have cannot be measured. Because when God sees me, he sees Jesus in me. And there's no amount of value to be placed on the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who I am a co-heir with, seated on a throne with, partaker of righteousness with, sharer of glory with. Not because of anything that I've done or anything that's good in me, but solely because of the grace of God himself. And friends, I once was a slave. A slave to my sin. And by the glorious, righteous mercy of God, I have been set free by the work of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that our great value is to be found in the person of Christ. God, thank you that your law was so kind 
that it made accommodations for the entire sinful nature of culture itself to show your greater picture of mercy and compassion. Father, thank you that our morality and our righteousness is not tied up in the conditions of the law or even in the law itself, but rather the work of Jesus Christ and his freeing us from the darkness of sin that encompassed our hearts so greatly. Father, forgive us when we try to confuse the two together. Father, forgive us when we try to find our moral worth and value in the keeping of law that was never meant to make us righteous. Father, forgive us when we detract from the glory of Jesus in doing so, rather than turning to him and finding our true infinite value and worth as partakers of his glory and his righteousness because of the gospel and because of your grace. Father, free our minds and free our hearts in this redemption story that you are bringing about in us. To stop striving under the weight and the strain of the mountain of Sinai. Instead, to live in the freedom and the glory of Mount Zion. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.